Hi, I'm Tim Harrison. I'm the Managing Director of Ionic Earths. We're developing a large ionic absorption clay deposit in Uganda, um, a unique basket of both magnet and heavy rare earths. And uh, with that product, looking at going downstream, developing a, a vertical supply chain um, into ultimately end users across the EV, offshore wind, military and defence um, industries. And I'm Andrew McElwain. I'm the Managing Director of Investigator Resources. Investigator has a number of tenements and projects in South Australia. The the prime asset is our Paris Silver Project, which in today's price has about $1.5 billion worth of silver in-ground value. Uh, We're moving that project through to definitive feasibility and with a view to taking it through to production. My name is Paul Bibby, Acora Resources. We're high-grade iron ore in Madagascar. In April this year, we announced our maiden resource for the Becky Soper project of some 200 million tonnes of iron ore. We've also got other projects which we've started doing our geological work on, which are looking promising. Those rock chips behind me are the recent rock chip, 68%. So we've got a really good opportunity for a high-grade DSO startup, as well as a high-grade iron ore concentrate future going down the track. Brilliant, gentlemen. Thanks very much for that uh, that introduction. Um, we're going to talk today uh, a little bit about the markets, and obviously you want to talk about your own companies. But I'm more interested in how you behave in an environment like this. Investors are very much risk off, sit back, and wait and see what happens with this uh, economy of ours. I mean, Tim, have you had to adjust your behaviour? Uh, look, we've just been focused on getting the feasibility study done at Makutu. Uh, we're also looking at developing our own refinery um, going downstream. Um, working with potential strategic partners there. And you know, earlier this year, we acquired Seren Technologies, so also developing magnet recycling. So as far as changing what we're doing, not really. Um, it's really focused on just delivering what we've set out to achieve and ultimately getting Makutu into production as soon as we can. And what about you, you Andre? I mean, you're well, South Australia. Really, it's it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty easy doing business down there, isn't it? Uh, relatively, um, apart from uh, challenges of COVID and so on as well. But, uh, yeah, look, interestingly, uh, our project, and if you say we had changed our approach, um, we're marching from the pre-feasibility study that we declared at the end of last year through to definitive feasibility study. Uh, we are reliant on support of shareholders, so always cognizant about balancing our work uh, and uh, an expenditure with what our capital requirements are. We have enough cash in the bank to keep moving forward at this stage. Um, and look, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting environment. We all saw sort of post-end of financial year sell-off of shares. Uh, and uh, and I think uh, people are seeing a recovery now as people are coming back into the stock. I mean, so, so um, Paul, just I want to kind of again, go around um, you, you guys and give you a chance to, to speak, but then I want to get into the conversation about how you think investors should be behaving. So, I mean, Paul, you you want, you want this, one of the smaller, the smallest um, company on here in terms of market. You need that liquidity. I mean, do you think investors are right to be risk-off? Do you think they sh- they need to be uh, preserving their cash? Look, it's it's an interesting uh, time for us. Um, like the others, we are continuing with our work plan. There's no doubt about that. Um, we've set ourselves some targets. We're urgently working through those and getting good results. We've also been spending a lot of time talking to our investors, and we've got a fairly unique sis- uh, situation where sixty uh, percent of our shares are held by the top twenty shareholders. And I speak with them routinely, and none of those are sellers, and they haven't been because they see the work, they see the results, they see the long-term opportunity, 
with the high-grade iron ore. Our, our dilemma is, as you said, liquidity. So it's buyers and how do we attract new buyers to the story? And uh, that's also something that I've been working on, uh, trying to find ways to connect with people who um, understand that the future, no matter, matter what it is, whether it's rare earths, copper, gold, um, lithium and the like, iron and steel are going to have a part to play there. And uh, the demand for iron is going to be strong going forward and getting people to understand that as that demand increases and the pressure is on those producers for improving their you know, green status, their carbon uh, footprint, uh, the high-grade iron ore that we can deliver from our Madagascan projects uh, fits very well with that future. Right, and, and Paul, how do, sorry, so Tim, how do you feel about this? Because you know, in an environment like this, where you, you know, rare earths is getting you know all, all the headlines, but you know, working into an EV um, build out globally, you, are you surprised that some of these metals, certainly in certainly the battery metals, um, and, and in your case, you know, rare earth metals, have come off so much given the kind of dem demand supply numbers that we're seeing? Oh, look, I think it's just a matter of time before those prices rebound. And I think when they rebound, they're going to rebound pretty strongly. Um, simply, the world needs more battery metals. The world needs more rare earths. Um, these technology metals that are going to unlock all of these, these future, you know, net zero carbon initiatives. Um, there simply has to be more brought on. There has to be more brought on. There has to be the processing capability brought on to be able to build these new supply chains. Um, so I think there's still going to be tremendous growth uh, beyond this decade and beyond um, in order to, to meet these milestones. But tell me this, I'm going to stick, going to stick with you for a second. We, we've seen, um, you know, companies like Ford and, and Tesla kind of moving up, uh, back upstream just to secure their supply chain for the next, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years because they're not quite sure um, you know, that they're going to be able to buy the way that they want. So do you think we'll see more of that? And is that, that going to replace the kind of traditional route for companies getting funded? Well, to some degree, it's back to the future. I mean, when you looked at, um, you know, Ford building the, the, their initial production uh, at the start of the 20th century, they, they had access and they had ownership in mines. They had ownership in supply chain because they needed to have that guaranteed supply to meet their, their targets. Um, I think going forward, security of supply is going to become increasingly more challenging for manufacturers, um, certainly beyond the EV space as well. The reality is in order to get access to the material, it's a finite amount of material, um, these companies are going to have to go upstream. They're going to have to stake um, a position to secure the product. Yeah, and so, Andre, for you, you're in the precious metal game, but it, some copper in there too, but precious metal game, I mean, the normal rules don't seem to apply anymore. In, in an environment like this, you expect silver, gold projects to be, you know, flying off the shelf. But the reality is, again, people are still unsure. Yeah, look, and, and interestingly, uh, Tim's line uh, about electrification and decarbonisation is almost a great introduction for me because... Uh, if you look at the statistics where uh, the forecast for electric vehicle construction is 400 million units over per annum in, uh, by 2025, every one of them has two ounces of silver in them. That's 800 million ounces of silver, which is today's production. And that's before you take into account, you know, photovoltaic and any other consumption of silver. So at some st stage, there's going to be a demand supply pinch. 
in the in the silver business. And um, you say it's interesting. Uh, you say, you know, what are our investors looking for? And the, the, we started by saying they're looking for news flow. And I always say, if uh, exploration companies stop work and stop news flow, it's like stopping your watch to try and save time. It doesn't work for long. Um, you know, we yeah. In fact, Herbert Hoover uh, that was his uh, throwaway line. But um, uh, stopping development to save money is uh, like stopping your watch to save time. But um, you know, the challenge, as I said, the the thing for us in, in Australia uh, or is in the silver space is that we're really the you know a one off. So uh, we're a proxy for silver investment. So it's a little bit different to base metal explorers and so on. But, uh, you know, decarbonisation and electrification is going to need rare earths, going to need silver. Right. But if you talk about, you know, news blow and, you know, companies talk about catalyst moments, um, there's been a great expectation every time you put out a news release that, that it'll move the stock. But it hasn't been, hasn't, hasn't played that way for the last 18 months, two years, I'd, I would argue. So what do companies need to focus on? What do investors need to focus on, which is important versus just news? In your opinion, Andrew? Yeah, look, uh, so there's no panacea for turning the share price around. Um, I think uh, investors, sometimes you put out a news release that reminds people they've got the stock and they sell it. So you sort of be a little bit cautious. But the, the side of it is it's about where you're adding value. You know, you can put out some spectacular drill, drill intersections, but how does that fit into the overall story about how this project's going to be a value add for shareholders going forward? And that's what we focus on, not individual drill holes. It's the project's far enough advanced about where are the value propositions for us to take this project for? Right, and, and Paul, for you, okay, iron ore, but big, big, Australia's famous for it, right? And, um, you know, but you, you're a small company. You're going to have to behave slightly differently from slightly more advanced exploration stories. So what, what is it that you think is important for your shareholders to be looking at? What are you trying to do or, or, or talk about out there that you think is important? Look, our, our shareholders have brought into the high-grade iron ore story and how that feeds into decarbonisation. Um, not every iron ore player can deliver 68% iron uh, with low impurities. And as the industry shifts, uh, we're in a good position to feed into that. The other side of that, which I guess is no different for Tim or Andrew, is that they're also wondering how we're going to fund these projects um, and how we're going to raise the capital. And what we're looking to do is start with our DSO, our cropping at surface, and the weathered zone where we're seeing, you know, grades of 64 to 68% iron, selectively mine that in the initial years um, in a very uh, low operating cost uh, scenario, generate revenue to improve that process and then add the, the capital that's needed as we build the project to deliver, you know, future production. Because um, people are often wondering how small companies like ours are going to raise the funds to compete. Okay, but you, so there's a couple of things there. One, green iron ore, it sounds like you, you want to be talking about here. Will people, can people, you know, truly rely on it to be green or is it, you know, a case of, well, these days everyone needs to put this kind of ESG spin on it, this, you know, carbon credits, net zero, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we de yep. define what real looks like? I'm still learning and I think the industry is still learning, particularly in iron and steel. It's one of the uh, major producers of greenhouse gas emissions, apparently, uh, across the world. You know, China is the biggest player, um, 1,200 million tonnes of steel produced a year. Australia produces 5 million tonnes of steel. So um, 
they have carbon emissions because of the coking coal. Uh, so how do you replace the coking coal? You've got to have a much higher iron grade input and use a different uh, reductant. And you know people are talking about hydrogen being one of those. The interim step is to go to natural gas. The Middle East is already doing that, uh, producing high grade pellets for the steel industry. So that, I think there's that transition phase. Um, in talking to a number of our institutional shareholders, uh, they are wanting us to move there faster and produce that higher grade concentrate, the 68%, because they see countries like uh, in Europe that are steel producers being probably under the greatest pressure to decarbonise, and they're going to be looking for that feed. And at the moment, there's not too many uh, iron ore producers that can deliver. Right, Tim. I mean, Paul's talking about, you know, the, the green component here being important for, important for raising money, you're getting pushback from funds, et cetera. I mean, you're, you're in rare earth, so I think, I think you're, you're probably halfway there already. But do you feel under any pressure from funders to actually tick that green box? I wouldn't say pressure. I think expectation. I think um, the reality is to develop the projects that uh, the, the world wants um, in order to provide the, the technology metals to um, enable net zero um, policy and net zero um, targets to be met. It's an expectation. Um, and so it's front and centre of what we're doing at the moment. Um, we're in the process of doing a life cycle analysis to understand where our project will, will sit relative to other potential rare earth projects being developed. Um, but ultimately, yeah, we're, we're trying to produce those, those products that are going to facilitate you know, renewable energy uh, or EVs. Um, there's no point doing it if you can't do it in an environmentally sustainable manner. So coming, um, you know, just thinking about where I am today with you know, Becky Soper and Iron Ore and thinking back maybe uh, 10 years ago, when I was doing feasibility studies uh, for you know, some of our, the projects I was involved in, uh, you would never have thought of solar panels or wind turbines. Uh, at best, you would have had a diesel generator and hope that you just could have linked into the overhead power. Um, our scoping study, uh, we're looking closely at the power demand, how we can reduce the power demand, but then looking at how we can deliver that power using solar. And Madagascar is an ideal place, just as, as Australia is, for solar power. So there's the first step towards you know, a green element of our production phase that we would never have done, you know, 10 years ago. But you, so, Angie, um, Tim talks about expect, you know, there's an expectation, right? Um, but who's, who's sort of judge and jury in this? Is it just down to the financiers, in which case, you, you know, one has to ask the question, um, you know, who, who are they to judge? You've got the SEC, you know, clamping down on a bunch of funds um, who have rebashed as ESG. I mean, how much more of this um, accountability has got to be driven from industry. Um, and how easy is that in an environment where there's it's a tough economic environment? So, you know, kind of focus on something like that. Yeah, look, and I think um, also you, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, shareholders or investors and or uh, financiers are going to be demanding accountability against ESG uh, guidelines and principles. And um, I think uh, you would be brave to promote a project that just went 
steady as you go, diesel, as uh, Paul mentioned, diesel generation, those sorts of things. Um, you know, if, uh, case in point for the, our Paris project, we're looking at, and it's an absolute monty for solar power generation out in the outback of South Australia, but the greatest demand is crushing and grinding. And we're looking at how we can actually crush only on day shift uh, when the, well, whilst the sun's shining and then use that in, as the inherent energy battery that we will draw down overnight shift and so on. But, um, I think if you, uh, and, and certainly in the sort of early discussions we've had with South Australian regulator, um, if you don't throw in a couple of key words in most sentences, their eyes start to sort of, you know, go dim and uh, and they, you're really losing uh, losing their attention. So, mm. so it, uh, mm. it's going to come uh, and and at the end of the day, they're accountable to the uh, to the uh, to the uh, population of the state, and uh, they're going to have to demonstrate that they're comp you know, encouraging uh, green development as well. So, Andrew, that was that was an interesting thing that I just picked up on. There is is just crushing on day shift. Um, Normally, once you get that mill turning, you want it to keep on turning. So how, how are you considering, you know, that challenge? Because, um, uh, you know, the power you need to start a mill is often the greatest power. So you must be given some thought to batteries as well um, and maybe even a larger solar field. Is that how you looking to tackle that problem? Look, all of the above, Paul, but one of the things is so certainly the crushing also consumes, uh, and if we can simply consumes a large uh, amount of power, if we can crush on day, during daylight hours and have solar delivering enough just to do the crushing, we would obviously need to crush twice the speed that the mill requires feed and you would draw that down during the dark. Mm -hmm. But um, Look, without doubt, I have a bit of a throwaway line because I said uh, if every Tesla's got two ounces of silver in it, if I can get Elon Musk as a shareholder, I'm away. That'll, that'll answer the financing of the project proposition. So. Mm. No, and what, what about you, Tim? You know, you're, you were in Africa. I mean, one of my, my favourite stories in Africa was where I think we, we lent a company 100 million bucks to buy tractors. And um, within a year, when we went back to find our tractors, we, we found two and the rest have been... You know, split up for parts. Um, it, you know, you, you've you. It's it's a difficult environment in which to do business. And if you're talking about independent power sources, uh, whether it be be, be um, solar or, or otherwise, how do you control that in an environment like yours? Uh, you know, in in Africa. So I mean, we're we're fortunate, Matt, in that we've got low cost hydroelectric power um, immediately accessible to the project. So. You know, within the space of a few kilometres, we're, we're basically able to, to draw off a 132 um, kV um, power line um, to be able to supply that, that low-cost hydroelectric power immediately to site. Um, beyond that, you know, just adding on what, what Andrew mentioned before, you know, the engineering company is also doing a great job as well in um, identifying opportunities to, to look at renewable or alternative sources of power um, thinking and changing the way in which previously, you know, process plants have been designed, coming up with new new approaches um, to try and tap into to new ways and better ways, more environmentally sustainable ways of processing ore. Right. Okay. And but um, to, to that end, you know, you we, we talked earlier about you know where the where the money comes from, and you know, you're obviously getting cheap cheap uh, energy as part of your infrastructure and and, and so forth. But you know, it, who are you getting the help that you need in country from government um, or do, do they look at you just as sort of a revenue source? Um, are you getting credits from the sort of wider African banking or financial community? No, look, I mean, at this stage, um, we're, we're driving a lot of the work 
um, and a lot of that ESG focus in positioning the project with a with a very low um, carbon footprint and a sustainable uh, project development path. Um, I mean, we're working through the environmental and social impact assessment hearings at the moment in Uganda. We've had tremendous buy-in from our stakeholders in Uganda who are looking at the ways in which we also look at rehabilitating uh, mined areas. So that whole life cycle for the project, um, beyond just the, the mining and processing, it's how we actually then rehabilitate and return that land back to um, back to local stakeholders. So um, Tim and Matthew, you mentioned African development banks and the like. Um, Madagascar off the uh, coast of you know South Africa, um, a developing country. They understand the need to improve their mining, um, you know their mining world. Get more input from companies progressing from exploration through to mining. The World Bank is also supporting that. They've recently announced uh, the construction of a road that is going to help a number of those mining companies get to the port. Uh, also, the European Community. Uh, because of the lack of power infrastructure right across Madagascar, are looking to support projects with solar fields. So if our project was able to win that interest from a European fund, French or whatever, to put in a solar field, that would be available for our need, but also for the need of the community um, along our project route. So um, they are there, they are funding projects, which is also a way that a, a project like ours can progress without necessarily needing all of the capital that we typically would have to provide. Um, and that is things that we are looking at. I've just come back from two and a half weeks in Madagascar. It was a tremendous trip. A lot of it was around the scoping studies, which we're just uh, looking at the transport corridor and the port. But also I had a session with the mining minister and his department. They understand what a company like ours needs to go from exploration to that next stage of studies and then through to you know, the mining phase, and they're supportive of us. Um, so we've just got to keep knocking on the door, making them aware of what we can contribute and whether it's a, pro a mining project, but also on the community side. And I know um, the other guys have mentioned about the community. We have been doing a lot of work in the community because we see that as an obvious way to get a workforce, but it's an obvious way to, you know, improve the lifestyle of those uh, communities and villages in the area. So it's not just the power, it's it's the water, it's other things that we can do, um, which builds trust and respect um, from the people in Madagascar. But, but you, you all three operate in three different um, jurisdictions, right? You've got Uganda, South Australia, Madagascar here. And I, and I was talking to a chat this morning who has got a project in Papua New Guinea, right? And I remember 10 years ago when we looked at that when I was in banking, um, it was like, no, that's a jurisdiction which is way, way too risky. Here he is, 500,000 ounces a year later, <clears throat> and uh, very wrong um, attitude. And we're sort of seeing the, you know, the South American issues flaring up with regards to politics and, um, and, and, and all sorts of punitive actions by governments there on mining companies. Do you think there's such a thing as a safe jurisdiction anymore or a tier one jurisdiction anymore? Or is it just about how companies interact on the ground, whether locally or, or, or federally? I mean, Tim, that, Uganda, that, that must have been a, a strange one for you. Yeah, look, I think investors probably see um, and make the designation on safe jurisdictions um, and probably then, in hindsight, maybe what, what they think is safe jurisdictions probably turn out to not be so safe. Um, I think at the end of the day, if you follow the right asset and try and get exposure to the right asset and the right commodities, um, 
then they're going to be the assets that, that need to be developed, that find themselves developed into production. Um, that's why we're there in Uganda. You know, we're there with a, a large iron absorption clay. Uh, very difficult to find. Um, it's a long life asset, um, low capital. Um, and, and I think we're starting to see companies now going into jurisdictions where 12 months, 18 months ago, they never would have gone previously. Um, it's just a nature of the the beast. You've got to go where the assets are. I mean, but how did you get over it? Because like Uganda has, okay, it's 70s and 80s, uh, perhaps, and maybe even early 90s, you know, Uganda didn't have the best reputation in the, in the world. You're also in rare earths, which is a kind of very hard to understand, was very niche um, space. I mean, th- th- those are some big things to get over. Do you Have you found the attitude to your project change from when you kicked it off to now? Definitely. I think from, from when we started or when I started working on this back at the start of 2020, um, we've navigated COVID. Um, we've, we've built a, a massive resource. We've worked through to a scoping study and we'll have a feasibility study in a few months' time. We've done a lot of education. We've, we've really tried to, 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 to help the wider investment community understand um, the opportunity in Uganda. We've had a very supportive Ugandan government who wants to see Makutu advancing from exploration to development, ultimately production. Um, and I think on the back of a mining licence, which we'll hopefully have early next year and, and production in 2024, you know, Uganda will open up. It's, it's, it's very underexplored. I think there's tremendous opportunity there. Um, and, and I think for us, it was a, it was a great location. Uh, I mean, that's where the asset was. So um, we've got to follow the asset. True, but you're talking about so in, 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 you know in, internal factors. I'm I'm kind of keen when because you're moving through the phases now, Tim. So when you're having conversation with with funders and whether that be export credit agencies or, or debt provide well, eventually debt providers by currently equity um, at institutional level, has their attitude to projects like this changed? And, 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 where, and where's that coming from? Is it because rare earths, well, you look at the demand numbers, or is it a case of Uganda's more acceptable to them, or is it just because you have advanced this and gone through the phases? I mean, what, what, what's what's appealing for them? Oh, I think all three of the above. I, I think more work. You know, we've de-risked um, the asset to some degree, which has helped uh, potential investors feel more comfortable with, with Makutu. Um, we've got a product that's very difficult to find anywhere else. So if, you know, we've got governments and strategic partners that are looking at building EVs and offshore wind farms, you can't do it without the dysprosium and the terbium that's going to come from Makutu. So Makutu is, is naturally a part of any discussion that needs to happen when looking at where are these magnet rare earths going to come from. Uh, and from a financing and funding perspective, you know, we've had good engagement with uh, development banks. Um, there's a number of development banks, obviously, that have an appetite for investing across Africa. But there's also development banks that are looking at securing the, the critical raw materials that are going to be required for the manufacturing industries um, Western governments are going to depend on for the next decade and beyond. So there's, there's a number of facets here that, um, that I think across the, across the broad spectrum, everyone's getting more familiar with, with Africa getting more familiar with, with Uganda. Um, we've still got a lot of work to do, but um, those discussions are, are easier had now. Right, and Andrew, so you're, you're in um, South Australia, right? So is it any easier or harder being in a tier one jurisdiction, that most Aussie companies want to tell me uh, if they've got assets in Australia? Um, because I'm, I'm trying to, do you get the help that you need? 
or as a case of standing on your own two, own two feet, and if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, where's the where's the help come from from the Aussie government, whether it be state or, or well, federal? And I suppose, Matt, uh, um, as you mentioned, I, I live and operate in two of the jurisdictions that are in the top 10 of the Fraser Institute survey. But having said that, I've also operated in a couple of places that are way down the other end as well. Um, and I think there's some common themes is that you can't assume or presume uh, that people understand what you're about and why. And as Tim said, you you can't nominate the location of your, your asset or your resource. Um, and I think uh, if you work on the basis of not surprising or scaring anyone in the in the process you work forward, then you know you, you're going to be um, you know well set. Um, you know there are some grander expectations I think of regulatory authorities in tier one jurisdictions than there might be in other places. And you know, I'm not speaking disparagingly about them, but um, you know the some of the things that uh, we need to comply with, and part of it's the visibility of uh, you know government disclosure and so on in in Australia as well, um, means that you know we we can't have any bumps in the road. Uh, when you talk about what are the government doing to help, uh, you know, we don't obviously can't uh, access you know, export financing or whatever it may be, but certainly one of the uh, mandates or uh, expect uh, that were put up by the South Australian government prior to their re their election a few months ago was uh, a de significant desalination plant that they have committed funds towards you know to the uh, to the review of that which is going to open up opportunities we've got two key challenges for our project which is really only a few hundred kilometers from the beach is power and water um, and that will answer at least one of them. Um, as I said, we talked before about how we might uh, sort the uh, the power issue. But um, look, there's there's not as much reliance, I think, in Australia on the government trying to provide support uh, and, and help you through the process. But look, having said that, in South Australia, we've been assigned a case manager who pre-reviews things for us at the moment. So, um, you know, they certainly recognise that the contribution that can be made to the state and to the country and you know, they're willing to assist. So tell me this. I'm stick, sorry, Andrew, I'm going to stick with you. Um, in, in terms of shareholders, investors more broadly, and maybe you all have a view on this one, right? The amount of companies that come and tell me that they're operating in, a, in the tier one jurisdiction or in a Fraser Institute top 10, wherever that may be, um, there seems to be more t um, top, top 10 jurisdictions than there are numbers. So um, <laughs> what, 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 do you think shareholders, investors are, are looking for? Do you think they care about that top one, top 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 ten jurisdiction component, or is it about look? I'm based on the fundamental thesis of whatever the metal is, or minerals are. Um, do is it the, the scale of the opportunity ahead of me? I mean, how, how important is jurisdiction these days? Uh, look, I think it, it simply comes down to a risk reward evaluation as well. Um, there are some places where the risk is higher, and you certainly would want the re, you know potential reward to be uh, commensurately higher. You know, if you were going to go and start a gold operation in Western Australia, it's a you know, there's a fair few precedents, and you've got a pretty good idea of how long that will take and the sorts of things you need to deliver. Whatever the project might be in a far flung country, and I think there are only ten of the ten, ten in the top ten, but uh, you know most You'd be of them surprised. are in the. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> I think I think there's at least twelve um, top tens in in the US alone, right? <laughs> 
But, you know, they sit within a regulatory regime that is well understood and not only that is, uh, you know, history has shown that it can be held up to, uh, to scrutiny and, uh, and, in fact, unlikely to be manipulated at any time along the way. I mean, Paul, this is just a few. You're, you're in Madagascar, right? I think, I think most people's yeah. view of Madagascar is, is, is from a, a cartoon animated movie. Um, but in terms of operating... In a place like Madagascar, which you, you suspect or one suspects the environment is a big piece of this, is it harder for you because the, the country has, you know, onerous expectations of how you should behave? Or is it just like any other jurisdictions and your responsibilities, your accountabilities is the same? I'm guessing it's the same um, anywhere in the world. You know, people can form a view, uh, particularly if they've never been there, from reading the books or watching the movie. Uh, when you actually get there, you might find that the reality is is not quite the same. Um, where our projects are reminds me of remote, distant, isolated northwestern Australia. Hot, dry, you know, grass doesn't grow, trees don't grow, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, having said that, um, you mentioned and, and both Tim and Andrew spoke about Tier 1 jurisdictions, as in the place that they have their operation. We look at it differently. And with our background of our team, we look at tier one approaches and tier one delivery, um, whether that's in social or community or in operation approaches. So, um, and I think that when you deliver the best in class, if this one, when I call it that, or the tier one approach in, in, in community and social work, in environmental, in power, in, in how you put together your process, you're going to be well regarded by the officials in that country and hopefully those also wanting to critique you. So um, we're very much about, in a developing country like Madagascar, which has a very good mining code um, and a very systematical, logical mining code to work through, um, that having tier one approaches and, and the methodologies is what we can do to differentiate ourselves and therefore get the support of government and the community. Okay. Yeah, I, sorry, carry on. Yeah, I think Paul's spot on. Um, I think that that tier one approach is is something that that we should all be be, be striving to achieve and, and deliver. Um, and, and with regards to the distinction between tier one jurisdictions or not, I think the approach that that every company needs to take to developing assets needs to be, you know, with the best intent. Um, and if they do that, then ultimately, you know, they're going to deliver a product that they're ideally going to be proud of. But, but talk, talk to me, Tim, because like you, you're at what, 170, 180 million market cap now, you know, and, you know, um, you've kind of worked through the phases um, for the last couple of years. We can talk about tier one behavior, which, which, which is great. But specifically, what are the things that you think that you did right that you know, shareholders one are probably aware of, and maybe other investors need to be aware of. And what what are the what are the things that are yet to happen that still need to happen to allow you to continue to tell a growth story? Yeah, so I think um, you know the successes of Ionic are probably a lot um, in due to the fact that we've we've gone about the work program and delivered on what we've set out to achieve. You know, we've delivered large resource updates. We've delivered a scoping study. Um, we've been able to, to advance Makutu in, you know, challenging environment through COVID um, and been able to add a lot of shareholder value over the course of the last, you know, two and a half years. Beyond that, there's a potential significant value unlock in, in the product that we're potentially going to produce from Makutu. 
So the strategy of going downstream, um, developing our own refinery or, or, or whatever that may be, um, and also potential to to look at magnet recycling and, and participate in the circular economy of rare earths long term, I think, you know, presents Ionic with a fantastic opportunity um, with these new supply chains that are going to build be built over the next Few years. Okay, so you're working into the right the, the right thesis in terms of the the, the metals, right? So I, I get that, and and lots of companies that come on here and say they've been through the kind of um, study phases. I, I'm I'm more interested about what what's the, what's the kind of you know, the personality required. What are the you know, whether it be ethical or, or you know in terms of work work ethic, etc. Uh, what are the things that d- distinguish a company which is going to succeed? From a company which is just going through the motions and you know participating for the promote, as it were. I'm, I'm interested in what the the you know what, what's the what's the true character of a, of an individual or a company which says this guy this guy this company is more likely to succeed than others. Oh, I think you need to be um, pretty relentless. Um, there's there's pl- plenty of things out there that that can um, can push you back or, or hold up progress. I think you just need to be focused on what's the ultimate end goal. You know, what are we aiming to achieve? How do we do it? How do we deal with the things that pop up um, along the way? How do we navigate that? And, you know, also probably have some contingencies along the way. Look at opportunities to accelerate where you can. Um, but ultimately, it's around delivery. Um, setting out, um, we, we set out an ambitious time frame um, to deliver a feasibility for, for Makutu and ultimately a, a mining licence later this year, a mining licence application. Um we did all of that through COVID. Um, you know, we we did push pretty hard. We built capacity in Uganda. Um, we looked at other ways in doing things um, rather than a conventional approach. Um, so, yeah, you have to be relentless. You have to be um, pretty focused and, um, you know, target-driven. And, Andrew, what's your word? How would you describe what success could look like? Just in, in, in one word and why? Uh, one word. I don't think I ever respond in just one word, but um, uh, completion would be the word, and that's uh, you know completion of what we said we were going to do. And uh, you know, just thinking about it, uh, tomorrow is the second anniversary of when we last raised funds to advance the the Paris Silver Project. So we raised eight million dollars, committed to complete the PFS uh, regional exploration. You know, a list of things, and tick tick tick, we've done those. So. Um, unfortunately, uh, not re- reflected in our share price at this stage. Certainly, we've increased value of the, the um, project, and um, you know we we will take it forward. But at the end of the day, uh, as Tim said, you know if some of these things, if it was any easier, someone else would be doing them. These rely on an absolute fanatical, you know, and relentless pursuit of what you think the right goal is. Um, uh, and the other one is too, if you're a bit of a shyster, you get caught out in this pretty quickly in this game. So people have got great memories. So, amen. Paul, what about you? How do you frame it? Well, our our uh, our word has been urgency. Uh, we we listed on the ASX in uh, December of 2020. Uh, and then three or four months later, it was COVID. I was in Madagascar at the time. Pleasingly, I put together a team, uh, and we continued through Madagascar, uh, remotely managing uh, the ge- geological program, the drilling and everything else. We had a sense of urgency that uh, regardless of what was happening around us, we were going to deliver on our promises uh, in the prospectus, and we did that. Uh, we, we got the resource of 200 million tonnes announced in April of this year on track, um, and on and on it goes. So. 
we've had a sense of urgency. We haven't, uh, you know, stopped for any other reason. I like the words relentless, which Tim and Andrew used. Um, I might take that up myself. Um, we've been just continuing to uh, work against the plan. And um, that has been well regarded by the shareholders. Um, and uh, they can see where we're heading. They can see the operational things. They can see the technical things. We're now about to, we've just embarked on the scoping studies. We've engaged the engineers. I've just come back from, you know, doing the transport logistics corridor for the first time, uh, driving the road, visiting the port. I was very encouraged by what I saw. We've got something we can build on there, which is going to, I believe, lower the transport costs compared to what we first thought. So it's this whole sense of urgency of different layers of work being progressed with a small team, but a capable team um, to deliver on our promises. Okay, and gentlemen, look, I appreciate your time today and some of those insights. And it's always interesting to see the way that, that your brains work, quite frankly, and sort of you know how, how you come out, how you come out. Promise. Um, look, today's been about um, trying to talk about things which may lend comfort to your shareholders, but also to investors more broadly in a very difficult environment for some people who've maybe not been through uh, you know any any of these kind of downward cycles before um, in terms of maybe how they should start thinking about projects um, and a little bit of hand-holding as well doesn't go amiss. But I'm going to ask you all just to finish off, give me two minutes on why you think your shareholders should continue to support you and why new investors looking at you should perhaps consider you going forward as the market recovers. So, Tim, I'm going to start with you. Well, I suppose where we where we are with Ionic Rare Earths, we're, we're going to be producing a very unique blend of rare earths, of individual magnet and heavy rare earths. And I think um, what I would implore um, investors to do looking at getting into the rare earth spaces, really understand the individual rare earth elements, understand where they're going to be used in, in future technologies, and then try and do some work to understand where is that material going to come from. Um, and I think fundamentally, once once investors understand that, they know it's a very short list of potential projects that can supply the full uh, spectrum of, of magnet rare earths um, to be able to facilitate all of the EVs and offshore wind farms that have already been committed to. Um, beyond that, when looking at who's going to be developing heavy rare earth capacity and who can genuinely provide the heavy rare earths to help Western governments build alternative strategic stockpiles of it, it's an even shorter list. So, um, you know, it's really do the work to understand the individual projects, the, the attributes of the project, the product, and where it's ultimately going to end up. And I think hopefully um, once investors have done that, they'll realise a great opportunity presents itself with Ionic. Thank you very much. Andrew, what about you? Well, look, we've talked about lists tonight and uh, Tim talked about how his is getting shorter, but if you talk about high-grade silver projects, there's only one in Australia. Um, you know, the, the rest, uh, and uh, without speaking ill of my peers, there's two or three others which are base metal projects. Ours is presented as a silver-only project. And uh, you know, as mentioned before, the supply-demand metric in, in the silver space uh, is compelling because, as I said, if I add up, electric vehicle consumption, solar panel consumption, all the other electronics and even changing of, from indium to silver in the screens of your uh, touch phone means that demand is, is going to continue to grow. 
um, and limited supply. Uh, South American uh, primary silver producers have halved their head grade in 10 years. So uh, what's the point of distinction? Uh, we're the only silver project in Australia with the grade that, with the grade that we've got. Uh, we're in a jurisdiction, or I won't say, we're in an area that has no community watershed, uh, water catchment issues and so on, which uh, is uh, distinction from our peers. But uh, my, without a one word, but my line is, if you're thinking about investing in silver, you should be thinking about investing in investigator. Um, we've done what we said we were going to do. We're pushing forward to completion of the DFS and uh, the project's eminently financeable at uh, you know silver price. Uh, not quite this week, but uh, a few weeks ago and, and longer term, uh, you saw what happened to the market in March 2020 when COVID erupted. We've recovered long since uh, then and I'm sure we will recover past what's happened in the last few months. And Paul, let's finish with you. Well, what's special for us is that um, the knowledge that we've delivered since listing has been significant. We've proven that the Becky Soper project um, is a significant iron ore resource. We've only uh, flagged 200 million tonnes so far but there's potential for in excess of uh, 500 million tonnes of iron ore at Becky Soper. And that upgrades very readily to plus 68% iron, which is what the market is looking for going forward. Um, what our shareholders are looking for, and I think shareholders who want to get on board with the Cora are probably looking for as well, is uh, an indication and clarity on the capital and operating costs. Um, they're the questions you always get asked. You know, what is the distance to port? What will be your transport costs? Um, for a project like ours, we've engaged the engineers, we're doing the scoping studies, and November this year we'll deliver on all of those answers for capital and operating costs, uh, which will give our investors the uh, confidence that this is going to be a good project to go forward. And uh, therefore, now is probably the right time at the, the prices that we're seeing to get on board a core and be part of the journey. Well, gentlemen, um, like, thank you very much for your, your insights, words of um, comfort um, a, a, as well in this sort, of, sort of market that we find ourselves in at the moment. Hopefully, investors uh, listening to this have got something from this. So I'd like to thank Tim Harrison, MD at Ionic Rare Earths, Andrew McElwain, MD at Investigator Resources, and also Paul Bibby, MD and CEO of Acora Resources. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks,